We have spent the last several weeks in John chapter 3. And in our time in, in John chapter 3, you, you, you find just this incredible passage of a man who comes to Jesus. He's a Pharisee. Not only is he a Pharisee, but he is one who would be a member of the Sanhedrin, um, one who would have been one of the rulers in Israel, one of the most respected people, one of the ones that would be looked upon as far as he keeps the law in its entirety. His name's Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus by night, and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You have to come from God. How else could all of these things be done? You've changed water into wine. You're working in all kinds of miraculous ways. Clearly, you've come from God. Jesus answers and says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He takes this man who thinks that he is just the one who is the most religious, who fulfills the law to the highest degree. And he says, most assuredly or truly, truly, the thing that you need to know most, Nicodemus, is that unless you're born again, you will by no means see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. Nicodemus just responds, how can... A man be born when he's old. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answers and says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answers him and says to him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so as we've looked at over the last couple weeks, Jesus takes him right to Moses in the wilderness and says, Nicodemus, you know, you know God's word. You know what has been said throughout the law, throughout the historical sections of scripture. You know specifically of what took place with, with Moses and these serpents, these serpents that are there and There's this judgment that comes upon God's people because of their unfaithfulness and their complaining and complaining. And there's these serpents that come upon the ground and they start biting the people. And they're poisonous serpents, that these fiery serpents that when they bite the people, 
they die, and they're dying left and right. They're dying all around the camp amongst the Israelites. People are dying. People finally say, okay, we'll do whatever. Speak to the Lord on our behalf, and God says, take a, a serpent, make a serpent. Put it in the middle of the camp. Put it on a pole. And when they look at it, when the people look at it, they'll be healed. It's just incredible. You see, God just saying, okay, make a serpent. He makes a serpent out of bronze, put, puts it in the middle of the camp, and just says, tell anybody that is bitten by any of these serpents, no matter how many serpents it is, if they get bit, just go and look at the serpent that is on the pole in the midst of the camp. Just look at it. Just look at it. There has to be faith that looks and says, okay, I don't do anything else. Like my, my leg is killing me or my side is killing me. I'm dying. I can feel the poison entering my body. I can feel myself shutting down. All I need to do is to just look at that serpent that's there on that pole. Just look at that bronze serpent. And so the people would do that. At least some of the people did. They went and they would just go and put themselves in a position to where they could just stare and look at that serpent that's there in the middle of the camp. And if they did... They were healed immediately. It's incredible. And God did that back with Moses to bring us to this particular passage in John where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and just saying, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That serpent that was there in the wilderness represents sin. Jesus hung on the cross and he became sin for us. He died and was crucified and became sin for us so that we would just look upon him. By faith, just look upon him. Not tie up our leg and put some kind of ointment on it. Not try to have someone extract the poison or anything like that. Just just look at him. Just look at him. And you'll be saved. Have faith in him. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, as we looked at last week. God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him, whosoever would look upon him, would not perish. Would not perish, would not spend eternity in hell. But have everlasting life. From there, in verse 17. Begin our text for this morning where it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. You see, Nicodemus would have been looking at Jesus saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? Because we want you just to take these Romans out. We want you to destroy our enemies. We're under bondage to them. We don't want to be anymore. Are you the one that is going to make a kingdom now? Are you the one that's going to do this? Are you, are you the one that's going to make it so that condemnation comes upon everybody else besides 
your people. Yet Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent Christ, not at that time to condemn the world, but that they might be saved. Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came at that particular time to seek and to save those who were lost. We know that there was those that were living, that were just looking forward to Christ, the Messiah who was to come, so that he would just destroy those who were on the earth. And Amos spoke to those people saying, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. As though he went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Woe to you who are just looking and say, may the Messiah come now and just condemn the world. Amos, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, just says, what good will that day be to you? Woe to you who are looking forward to that day. You're running from a lion, you're going to find a bear. You're running from a lion thinking, okay, if I could just escape. And you're, just, you're, you're going to face a bear, and it, it's not the place that you want to be. So we hear in John three seventeen, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In verse 18, it says, he who believes in him is not condemned. What passage that is. The weight of that passage for us. He who believes in him is not condemned. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The thought of not being condemned, the thought of, of the condemnation in which we deserved, the condemnation of separation from the glory of God, being removed from God's presence for all eternity, the condemnation that we deserved as far as experiencing the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, the condemnation that we deserved of eternity apart from him where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth or the idea of blackest darkness or the, the idea of being away from any kind of joy that is there in the Lord. Whereas in heaven it says enter into the joy of the Lord. Condemnation and eternity in hell is the exact opposite of that. You'll not be able to bear it. You'll be there for a million years and it will seem like it would have to be over. And you've just started. Eternity apart from Christ. Eternity in blackest darkness. You look and it tells us he who believes in him is not condemned. 
But what about those that don't believe? What about those that don't believe? I mean, for us, we look at this and it says, he who believes in him is not condemned. And we just think, it's amazing. No condemnation. But what about those who don't believe? Primary, primarily in our section this morning, I want to look at a, a theology of unbelief. What, what about those that do not believe? But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who does not believe is condemned already. You see, what this passage tells us is that the condemnation is not coming upon those in whom they've lived the entirety of their lives and they have failed or they haven't done enough. It tells us that if you do not believe in him, you're already condemned. You're not waiting for something else to happen. I mean, you're, you're, you're waiting for the final retribution as far as being before God at the great white throne of judgment in which the sentence is laid out for you of depart from me. But even before that, you're already condemned. An unbeliever is already condemned. They're already in that place where they don't need to do anything further to earn eternity apart from him. They're already condemned. Because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is huge for us to look at. In John 5, 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. But on the opposite side, he who does not believe, they're already condemned. When it says believe, it's not simply saying recognize that there's a God that exists. There's a lot of people that recognize that God exists. There's a lot of people who cry out to God at times and just say, God, help me. They live for the world. They live for themselves. They live for the things of the world. But in a time of crisis where they look at a place where they think that they're going to die, it's at that point, God, help me. Or they'll say, yeah, I believe in God. Of course I believe in God. This, not all this came from nothing. I mean, obviously there's a creator. I believe in God. They may even say, I believe in Jesus. Absolutely, I believe in him. I, don't, I, I believe that he existed. I believe that he died. I, I believe these things. And yet, their faith is such that their belief is on the surface as far as I recognize these things. It's like what James talks about where it says in James 2.17 
Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well, but even the, belie- even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And so you can say, I have faith. Yeah, I have faith. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe all these things. But when you look at your life, your life is such that your belief in him is, I believe in God. I believe in these things. But there is no, and I believe, I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And he took my sins upon himself. He took all of my weight, the weight of all of my sins upon himself Removing them. My only hope for my sin being removed is that Christ died and took my sins upon himself and gives me his righteousness. And he's done this in such a way that there's this great exchange that's taken place where my sin's been removed and it's replaced with his righteousness. And the only way that I could ever spend eternity with him is by believing in him and trusting in him and looking to him as both my Lord and my Savior. And the response is, I just want to follow him. I want to live for him. For someone to say, I believe, and then they just they, they don't care at all about the things of God. They have no desire to spend time with God. They have no desire to obey his commandments. There's no fruit that is coming out of their life. It's not a genuine, God-given faith. It's a faith that simply says, I believe. Yeah, I believe. This is made more clear in other parts of Scripture. Like, for example, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's those that are coming to him. He says, they're going to come on the last day. Lord, Lord, look at all the stuff that I did. And his response is, depart from me. You're lawless. I never knew you. See, in their minds, it's, well, yeah, I believe. Not only do I believe, but look at all the stuff I'm doing. But Jesus is saying, that's not genuine fruit. You can say, I believe, and look at what I've done. But the fact of the matter is, is that a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. And you'll know them by their fruits. For someone who who comes to me and says, I'm a believer. Yeah, absolutely, I'm a believer. And you look at their life and there is just no evidence of regeneration. There's no evidence of what Christ is talking about here in John chapter 3 is you must be born again. You must be regenerated. You must be made alive. You must be made able to see. And you must have a heart that is changed. You must have the Holy Spirit that enters inside of you. And that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There must be fruit that comes out of your life to some degree. It has to happen if you're a believer. You must be born again. It must be an act of God in which he regenerates you. And he changes your affections to where your affections are no longer for the things of this world. But your affections are towards Christ. 
It doesn't mean that believers don't struggle with sin. We do. We struggle with sin. He who says that he's without sin is a liar and the truth isn't in him. We all struggle with sin, don't we? You hear Paul saying, what am I doing? (laughs) The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I hate are the very things that I do. A wretched man that I am. I mean, all believers deal with sin. But there's a difference. There's, There's those that deal with sin and they hate the sin. You see it in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 where it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Someone who is living in a lifestyle of I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I don't care what God says here. I'm going to live the way that I want to live. God says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is something that's just so vital for us to understand. I mean, for where the church is today, brothers and sisters, we need to get a passage like this. When we live in a time in which they're ordaining homosexuals to the ministry, where churches are sanctioning homosexual weddings, when we live in a a day in which it is okay, I I just heard Friday that there's a pastor here in the valley who's a homosexual and pastors a church. And you look at it and we're we're not talking about like, gosh, that's really some kind of radical extremist group. You're talking about the major denominations across our land say that that's okay. And you look at this and the response is, well, they they can't help being that way. I mean, who would choose to be a homosexual? I mean, do you know what that was like growing up in their family and, and what it was like just as, as far as, you know, the pressure that they were under and so on and so forth? And, and so they look and say, God made them that way. Turn with me for a moment to, to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Because... If someone comes to me and says, God made me this way, do we, do we take their word for it or do we look at the authority of God's word? Let's, let's just start at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so they're pushing down the truth. There's a truth that's there and they push it down. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even the eternal power, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So let's just stop for a moment. Apart from the homosexual issue, you look at this and it's just saying, God's revealed himself in such a way that those that are unbelievers, those who are in unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. God's made himself known to them. But they're without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful 
but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. So God's saying what they've done is they've taken the glory of the incorruptible God and said, I don't like him. I don't like him. I want him to be like this. I don't want a sovereign God who is holy over all things. I want him to be like this. I want it to be where if I just try to build up good karma, if I obey five pillars, if I try to keep the law, if I, if I try to do the best things, or I don't want, I don't want a God that, that, that says that I can't be happy in a homosexual marriage. My God's not like that. My God doesn't do that. And so I don't believe in a God like that. And so they create a God in their own image. They create a God and say, this is how I want him to be, therefore, this is who he is. And it goes on, and it just says here, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to, do, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the, creation, or the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Notice the words that he uses. Exchange the truth for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanging the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. They went against nature, women doing with women and men doing with men, which was against nature. That, that passage alone is so clear. It is so clear to look at a passage like that and say, this is not the way God made them. They made decisions to live in this way. That is why they're homosexuals. It's that they've made decisions to live in this way. In verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, their whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God and that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same thing, but approve of those who practice them. And so we look at this section and it's saying, there is a false belief. There are those that say, I believe, and God says, no, they've just made me in their own image. And I gave them over to a debased mind to do the things that aren't fitting, to do the things that are unnatural. And that's why we look at a passage like what we're looking at here in, in in 1 Corinthians 6, where it says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, and so on and so forth. And so you look at this, and you say, Okay, so someone who is living in homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think it's absolutely possible for a Christian to struggle with homosexuality. I think it's definitely possible for a Christian to be in a place of, I struggle with this. 
I'm broken, just sexually I'm broken. Just like there's other people who are broken sexually and they do things that are perverse and they do things that are wrong, I think all people struggle with some kind of brokenness sexually. But likewise here with homosexuals, you look at it and it's just, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor will someone who is living in fornication. It's living that way. We, we live in a time where the church has become so much like the world where it's just, yeah, I mean, how else are you going to know if you want to marry the person unless you live with them first? got to live with them. I mean, what if, we, what if we're not compatible? A life of, of fornication where God's just saying, like, no, you're living in that state. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Adultery? You're living in a state of adultery. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're living in a state of being a thief. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. A drunkard? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11 says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And so you look and God says, you have to believe in order to be saved. There must be faith that's there, but it needs to be a genuine faith that is a real faith. And if you look at your faith and you say, well, yeah, I believe in God. But you look at your life and you're an, a fornicator, an adulterer, a homosexual. You're a thief. You live in a lifestyle in which it is radically contrary to the word of God and what God says. God's saying, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because your faith that you say that you have is not a genuine faith. It is not a real faith. Because if it's a real faith, then God will leave the 99 and he'll go get the one that went astray. And he'll bring you back. He loves those and he chastens those that he loves to where there are many that are in this group saying, I was a homosexual or I was an adulterer or I was a fornicator or I was a thief or I was one who was an alcoholic. I was one that was a drunkard. I was one that coveted people's things. I was the one that did that thing. And such was me, but I've been washed. I've been clean. You may still struggle with some of these things, but in your heart, it's like, I hate this stuff. I don't want anything to do with this stuff. God, help me. I don't want this anymore from my life. I hate my sin, and I want to just pursue righteousness and follow him. And so for the person who is here in this church who says, I believe in God, but your life is just a wreck, and you have no conviction of your sin, and there's no desire to follow him, and you're living in that place, Please be warned by this. God says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I would hate for someone to be here week in and week out and be an unbeliever. They think they have faith because they say prayers. Or they think they have faith because they go to church. But the fruit that comes from their life is radically contrary to the word of God and the fruit that comes from the spirit. We need to see this. We need to see what God says. Because he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They may say that they believe, but he is not your Lord and he is not your Savior. And you look at your life and there is no sorrow for your sin. I mean, you hear God say, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And praise God for that because we look at this and say, such was me. I was, that was me. At the end of the service today, you may be in a place of, and that was me. When I walked into the church, I was one of those things. But I've been washed, but I've been cleaned, I've been changed. Because the Holy Spirit has radically converted me to where my sins are removed. 
See, the believer who hears these things and says, okay, so a fornicator, an adulterer, a homosexual, a sodomite, those that are covetous, those that are revelers, those that are drunkards, so on and so forth, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And they look at their life and they see that as a part of their life. They look and they say, God, you just spoke to me in that service. You chastened me. You brought me back to you to where I don't want anything to do with those things. And I just want to follow you with my whole heart. I want to repent. I want to make a radical change of direction. I was going in one direction. I want to go in the opposite direction. And I just want to pursue you with my whole heart. If you look at this and, and, and it's genuine belief that does that, it's the result of the Holy Spirit who is working in you. That's why in Matthew 18, it tells you when someone is in sin like that, you're to approach them and call them to repentance. If they still don't repent, you're supposed to bring multiple people with you. If they still don't repent, you're supposed to bring them before the church. And if they still don't repent, you're supposed to treat them as if an un, they're an unbeliever because a believer will repent. That's why my, Matthew 18 says that. The Holy Spirit will work in that person's heart to bring them to repentance to where they look and say, like, okay, I need help with it though. I need help. I need accountability. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. I hate it. I don't want to do that. Please help me. I repent. I'm so sorry for it. Not, I'm just living a homosexual lifestyle because that's how God made me. I'm just living a life of thievery because I'm a thief and that's what just I do. That's how I make money. There has to be a change that takes place. Evidence of a change that takes place. Look at verse 19, and this is the condemnation, back in John 3. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So why are they condemned? Because light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. They loved the darkness. It's not, well, they just didn't have enough opportunities, or they just, you know, they grew up in the wrong family. They grew up in the wrong country. They, they're, they're in a place of, the, they were surrounded by so many hypocritical Christians, and because they were surrounded by so many hypocritical Christians, that's why they're not a Christian. Or They're not a Christian. I, I blame her dad. I blame his dad. He had a hard upbringing. Whatever it is, you can go on and on and come up with excuses of why someone doesn't believe. God just simply says, no. The light came into the world and they loved the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They loved darkness rather than the light. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. If you're practicing evil, you hate the light. You hate it. You don't come to the light lest your deeds should be exposed. There could be people who sit here in the church right now and are just like, you know what? You're kind of mean. And I don't like the stuff that you're saying right now. And I will not be back at this church ever again because I don't, you're mean. You said bad things about people that are fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and drunkards. I don't want anything to do with that. And I think it would make evidence that they hate the light. Like I pray to God that we preach the fullness of God's word and say, this is a mirror. Here is God's word. Look at it. So that you can look at yourself, that I can look at myself and say, is it genuine? Is it real? Am I born again? Have I been regenerated? What kind of fruit's coming from my life? So that I can look at it and say, no. I don't think I'm saved. 
I, I need to fall on my knees. I don't, it doesn't matter that my parents are saved. It doesn't matter that my grandpa and grandma were saved. It doesn't matter that I grew up in a Christian home. I don't think I'm saved. I mean, I look at it, and there's good fruit that comes from good trees and bad fruit that comes from bad trees, and I think I got bad fruit. And you fall on your knees, and you plead to God to forgive you. You place all of your hope in Christ and him crucified and what he did for you on the cross, saying, I need to be regenerated. I thought that I was okay, but I was not. I was not. My life was radically contrary to the word of God. And so the light shines, and rather than hating the light, you fall and just cling to him. And it tells us in the next passage, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they've been done in God. There's a change that takes place. There's a sermon that was preached in 1741 by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It radically changed our nation, and not only our nation, but throughout a huge portion of the world as well. It was that sermon that was preached in a time of guys like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield that started what was called the Great Awakening in the church. And that great awakening took place. And when it talks about great awakening, it's not talking about people who are just out there in the world that, that are living in sin and, and, and living for themselves. And all of a sudden there's this great awakening. I mean, there was. There was revival that took place and change that took place. And people were getting saved that had never come to church. But there was a great awakening that took place in the church. Because there was people asleep in the church. There was people that thought that they were okay in the church. And there were sermons that went forward like sinners in the hands of an angry God where, I'll tell you, it's powerful. You hear him say things like, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. There's nothing that keeps anybody out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. He says in this sermon, they are already, referring to unbelievers, they are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They're already under the sentence of condemnation to hell. They do not only justly deserve to be cast down, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind, has gone out against them and stands against them so that they are Bound over already to hell. John 3.18. He that believeth not is condemned already. So that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell. That is his place. So Edwards uses this particular text to say those that, that are unbelievers. They're already condemned to hell. He, he uses the text of, of Deuteronomy 32.5 saying their foot shall slide in due time. They're, they're there and they are on slippery ground and it's just a matter of time. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk down an icy walkway with dress shoes on, but you will fall. It's just a matter of time. I mean, you may try for a little bit, but the longer you walk, it is just inevitable. You will fall. It's inevitable. And likewise, for the unbeliever, he goes to apply this particular sermon to the people. And he says, there is, a dreadful, there is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. 
There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air, and it is only by the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. I mean, when we look at our text this morning, and it tells us that he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, then this is the condemnation that the light has come to the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. What he's telling us is you're already condemned. There's nothing, there's nothing. On, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, there is nothing keeping you out of hell with the exception of the mere pleasure of God to keep you out of hell. He is the only one that is keeping you out. He could let you go at any moment and there is nothing that could stop you. It's just radical to think about. You may look and say, well, I work out. I'm like vegan. I go, I, I eat organic everything. I, I, you don't know how well I take care of myself. I'm not like in a dangerous position right now. You have no idea. You're, you're on icy ground. You could fall at any moment. You have no control over your next heartbeat. You, you can do nothing to keep your heart beating one more time. It's a mere pleasure of God. He says, you probably are not sensible of this. You find you're kept out of hell, but you don't see the hand of God in it. You look at other things, the good state of your bodily constitution, your care of your own life, and the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing if God should withdraw his hand. Your wickedness makes you as it were heavy as lead. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care of and, and prudence and your best contrivance and all of your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. If it wasn't for the sovereign pleasure of God, you would not be with us one more moment. You could take everything that you got. I'm a good person. Everybody likes me. I do good stuff. I try my hardest in school. I work hard at work. I'm a good businessman. I'm a, I'm a good mom. I'm, I, I do the best things I possibly can. I look at, look at my life. It's, just, it's good. And God just says, apart from you believing in Christ and hoping in Christ and being born again, all of your goodness would do nothing just like a spider web is unable to stop a falling rock. It's impossible. He says, the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. And the fiery floods and the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush forth and incons- with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yes, 
10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest and sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. You, couldn't, you could be 10,000 10, times stronger than the most powerful demon, and there is nothing that you could do to stop the wrath of God to come upon you. And you may look at it and say, but I'm a good person. He wouldn't send someone like me to hell. And you have no idea. You have not looked properly into the mirror of God's word to hear him say things like, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. The inclination of your heart is only evil continually. You do whatever is right in your own eyes. You, you, your righteousness is, is like filthy rags in your sight. In, in his sight, you have no idea of the holiness of God and the purity of God. You would fall upon him and just say, God, save me. I'm a sinner. And there'd be no pride in your accomplishments if you understood the holiness of God in the depths of your sin. And we look at this and we say, God, help us. I mean, he says, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never pass under the great change of heart, being born again, by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of, of new and before altogether unexperienced light in life are in the hands of an angry God. Therefore, or however, you may have reformed your life in many things and you may have had religious affections and you may keep up a form of religion in your families and in your closets and in the house of God and it is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being at this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that, have, those that are gone from being in like circumstances with you, see that it was so with them. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected nothing of it. And while they were saying peace and safety, now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, when we say you must be born again, you must believe, you must have genuine faith that is there, this is what God says to us. Don't have a belief that says, this is my God and this is what he's like. And God says, you just made him in your own image. Don't have a surety of your salvation if you're just living for the things of this world. Repent. Fall down and plead for forgiveness. Don't base your salvation on your parents' faith or that of your grandparents. Believe upon him. Look at your life and say, God, this day you saved me. On this day, you chastened me as a loving father chastens me and you brought me to repentance. I want to be amongst those that it says, and such were some of you. Here at Reverence Bible Church, we love homosexuals so much that we desire to proclaim the gospel to them. We love drunkards so much that we desire to preach the gospel to them. We love people that are in fornication or adultery because we want to proclaim the gospel. We love that God can forgive sins and it doesn't matter how many times you've been bit. You look upon him and you're saved. 
We love that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. We love the gospel. We love that he works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He changes us. He began a good work in you and he'll be faithful to complete it. And from beginning to end, our salvation is him. And to him belongs all the glory for our salvation. We look at this and this is the gospel in which we have. And I tell you, Edwards in his sermon says, if there was one person in our congregation that we knew for sure was going to go to hell, all the rest of us would fall down in just a bitter cry over them. We don't want anybody to spend eternity apart from him. And that is why we don't compromise on the gospel. You must believe. And it must be genuine. You must be born again. And you must look at your life and say, is there evidence of that in my life? Not of what you've done, but of what God has done in you. May we not be those that build our house upon the sand. But may we build our house on a foundation that is a rock And that rock is Christ, and it is him crucified in which we are saved. And it is to him that we pray on this morning and sing songs too. I'm going to ask the elders after the service just to come forward. And if anybody needs prayer, please come and just pray. Ask for prayer. Whether it be coming to salvation on this day, or whether it be coming to repentance on this day. When Edwards preached this sermon, there was people that fainted from his sermon fainted. They just wanted to be saved. And there were people, there were people who were saved on that day. And I assure you, there were probably also people that read the sermon or that were there on that day that heard that sermon and they they today are in hell and they think of that sermon every day. God help that not to be anybody here May today be the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Lord God, we love the gospel. We love that you died on the cross for our sins and you've made us whole in you. We love that we have that assurance that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. We love that you're a father who sees his son still afar off and and, and that prodigal son, you run to him. You run to him. You put on the robe. You put on the shoes. You give him the ring. You kill a fatted calf because your son who is lost has been found. Your son who is dead has been made alive. We love that you are a God that is full of grace and full of mercy. And it is not us preparing ourselves to come to you. But it is us just looking upon you to be saved. Faith in you. Not anything of our own. But totally and completely faith in you alone that saves us. God, work in our hearts this morning. Cause people to be saved on this day. Cause others to just come to repentance. And cause us to go forth from this place with boldness in the gospel. That we may not compromise it, but find such joy, such joy in knowing that you have come to save sinners. And such were all of us. We praise you for that. Be glorified now through the praises of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.